Well, good morning, CBC or CBS, uh, whichever one. Um, again, it's good, good to be with you this morning and just to have the privilege again to, to share the word with you. So um, I was born into the church. I was actually literally born into the church because I have actually pictures of me being in a crib at the church um, at the time. And so uh, the church was this huge part of my life. Uh, my father was a pastor at this Korean American church in central Jersey. And when I was growing up at this church, like every, every facet of my life was involved with this church. But one of the things that I remember growing up, um, my parents would try to teach me um, just this discipline uh, of giving, uh, of tithing. And so every Sunday, uh, each morning, my mom would give me a nice, crisp, new dollar bill for me to give as church offering. So whenever I would go to Sunday school, I'd go and have to give this offering to, to the church. Um, and I don't know if you, you had, your parents did this for you to you know, just instill in you this value of giving and being generous or, or giving and tithing to the church, uh, but I would, I would do this. But I remember my, my devious mind started started working, where I thought, well, I could actually hold on to this dollar bill, and I can go actually to the corner store, and our church was near, a, you know, a, a store that had um, candy, and so I thought, oh, I could actually keep this dollar bill, and I can buy a lot, of, a ton of candy, and at that time, back in the day, you can buy a lot of candy for a dollar, and so I then devised this plan where I would actually crumple up my nice new dollar bill put it in my fist, and then when the offering basket came around, I would pretend to drop it in there, but then I would hold on to it, and then the offering basket would pass by, and I'd go, and then that day, I went to the store, bought all this candy, like Bazooka Joe, and all these different things, and then I like told my friends, I was like, look how much candy I got, and I was enjoying it, so then I was like, it was so easy, so I ended up telling all my other five-year-old, six-year-old kindergartners this, this practice, and I was like, hey, you know, it's so easy, you could do it too. <laughs> and so th the next Sunday, they do the same thing that I taught them, and then we go out to the store, we get all this candy, and we're all just like, well, this is awesome, this is the best. Eventually, we get caught, right, because it ends up, you know, like you see, there's like 12 kids that are at Sunday school, the offering basket comes around, and there's like $3 in the basket, <laughs> So then the teachers are like talking to the parents, are like, and the parents are like, yeah, we gave them a dollar bill to, to give. So it's like, okay. And then they all started asking all the kids, and then the kids actually ratted me out. They said I was the mastermind, right? So it, it was pretty messed up, but I think the most messed up part about it is my dad was a senior pastor of this church, and here he is trying to teach people how to be better disciples of Jesus, and here I'm teaching the other five-year-olds how to steal offering from them. Right? So... I'm hoping and praying that my daughters are not like me and that they don't go off and stealing things, but I don't know, we'll, we'll see, you know, sin, sin is bad. But, but I remember linking back to that time and right, seeing that, that there was rebellion in my heart. I was at such a young age and yet there was something in me that allowed me to rebel. And I think we're going to actually look at a passage here in Genesis where we see where rebellion actually begins. Where does that, that come from? And in the last few weeks, we've been actually looking through Genesis, right? Looking at how God had intricately created this world to provide all that we need, to give us a home, to dwell in, to be able to flourish. 
right? from nothingness to something that God has declared that is good. But yet, God gave us all of this for us to flourish, and yet, humanity, we rebel. And so we're going to look at that point in which all of that got messed up. And so if you have your Bibles with you or if you have your phones, turn with me to Genesis 3. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. (laughs) All right. Well, that was the fall, so... (laughs) All right, let's go. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die, in which God did not say that you can't touch it. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the word of God. Would you just bow your heads for a quick moment in prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, um, for the ways in which you have given us these words um, to help us to be able to learn more about you and to be able to hear more of the goodness, and and all that it is, Lord, that you want to to give to us and offer to us, God. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just open up our minds and our ears to be able to hear from you and to be able to receive from you this morning. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me uh, sprinkle in, again, a little context for us uh, this morning. So in the previous chapters uh, of Genesis, we get this beautiful picture uh, of God creating the world and creating humanity, creating Adam and Eve. And in God's meticulous design, God creates everything in harmony and provides all that we need. God provides the animals, the birds, the vegetation, all the resources that human beings need to, to not only survive, but to thrive. Right, food and a home to flourish in. Not only does God provide these things for humans to be sustained with, but also God gives humanity a purpose or, or a vocation, as we heard in the last couple of weeks, right? to be fruitful and to multiply this vocation of ruling and subduing and, and really being caretakers of all of creation, right? to, to be the ones to help the, the creation to all of it to flourish as well. And it's a beautiful picture of the way in which God has made the world good. But then there's this commandment that God gives the humans, right, in chapter 2. And it's just one command. It's not 10. It's not 100. It's not this huge list of things to do, but one simple command. And it's in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 16 to 17. And it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, 
you will certainly die. So imagine this, okay? God has created this paradise, a place for humanity, and gives them one command. Not a long list of do's and don'ts, but one command of don't eat from this tree. Now, what's interesting about this command is that God gives it. He doesn't really actually explain why you shouldn't eat from it. He doesn't give this long you know, paragraph of reasons of why you shouldn't do it. He doesn't say, hey, if you eat from it, you know, just know that it's like high in calories, it's really fattening, right? And if we heard that as Southern Californians, we'd probably be like, okay, we're very self-conscious with our body, right? It's like, okay, I won't eat from it. He doesn't say that. Right? He doesn't say, hey, if you eat from this, it will be the start of the downfall of all of humanity, and everything after this will just be terrible. He doesn't say that either. He just says that if you eat from it, you will certainly die. And that's all he gives. That's all the context he gives for this. And he just says, this is what I'm asking of you. And the reason why he doesn't give all these explanations for it is he's asking us for humanity to trust him, to obey him that we would trust that in God's ultimate wisdom that he knows best. He has our best interest in mind, and he's telling us to just listen and to obey. But of course, that's not what actually happens, right? In our passage, we see the first instance of human rebellion, and it becomes the start of sin and destruction for humanity. Uh, What I want to explore this morning is I have three points, and I actually made it into an alliteration, which I rarely do, so don't ever expect me to do this ever again, but it's an alliteration with using the letter C. Okay, but but here's the first point, the catalyst of our rebellion. So in the beginning of the passage, the serpent comes out on the scene, and he begins to attack the relationship that humanity has with God, and it says that the serpent is more crafty than others. And so it begins to twist the words of God. It says, did, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent is probing, intentionally twisting the words, knowing that God never said that they couldn't eat from any of the tree in the garden, any trees in the garden, but just that one tree. And so the woman replies, God said that we can eat from this, the trees, just not the fruit from this tree in the middle, because if we do, we will die. And this is when the serpent lays down the groundwork for doubt to enter in because he begins to say, you will not certainly die. What's interesting here is that the serpent is not trying to attack the existence of God, but instead is going out to cast doubt on our trust of God. Do you get that? And that's an interesting thing because I'd contend that for most people in this world, they don't necessarily doubt the existence of God, but they doubt whether there's actually a benevolent God that we can trust. I have a really close friend um, that I met in high school. We've been friends, good friends ever since. Um, We've been friends for over, you know, 25 years, and and I consider this friend like a brother to me, and I actually got to see him yesterday as he uh, dropped off a gift for for my eldest daughter's birthday. Uh, But I remember when I met him in high school, He called himself the biggest atheist, right? And and then, uh, and over the years, we've had countless discussions about God and about faith. And over that time, we've actually become also great friends, right? To the point where I really do see him as a brother. And, And we've settled into this place now. We can agree to disagree about certain things when it comes to religion and faith. Uh, But we've gone to this point now where he actually would claim he's not an atheist, 
but he's an agnostic, right? So there's some progress there, uh, and I'm continuing to pray for him, but he would now say that he does believe that God exists, just that God exists out there, but God just doesn't do anything, that there is a higher being out there, but this God just sits there up in heaven and doesn't do anything for us, right? And, and I would argue that the majority of people would have that kind of posture to God too, that God is this higher being out there, but very uninvolved. And that's exactly what the serpent is attacking. The serpent is attacking whether God can be trusted. The serpent is embedding this lie in the human heart that God cannot be trusted. Are you sure you're going to die if you eat this fruit? Mm, I don't know. I don't think that's going to happen. And what's happening is that the, the serpent is manipulating our view of God, instilling this distrust of God, which becomes the catalyst of our rebellion. The serpent is making you believe that God is withholding something good from you and that God's intention for humanity is not for our good. The late Timothy Keller he shared an illustration of, of what the serpent is doing, and I've actually adapted it for, uh, for us today. And so imagine if I took my youngest daughter, Audrey, to a Toys R Us, okay? And I know there's no more Toys R Us now because they've gone bankrupt and whatever, but um, let's say in this analogy, I, I take Audrey to a Toys R Us in, in its heyday, right? And a quick aside, I, I feel like my, my kids are missing out by them not experiencing a Toys R Us because they think the five, six aisles at Target are like the greatest place in the world, right? But like just imagine if they went to a Toys R Us that's just like a whole store with toys, I think they would just have their minds blown. Okay, going back to this. So I take Audrey to a Toys R Us and she's amazed at all the toys that she sees. She's ooing and aahing over all the toys that she sees. She's getting excited. And it's also another thing with Audrey is anytime she sees a toy, she gets really excited, and she'll actually bring the toy over to, to me and Ashley, my wife, and she'll go, can I get this for my birthday? And we're like, your birthday's not for 11 months. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you, you can get it, right? And so she's like, and we tell her to take a picture with our phone. She takes a picture with our phone, and then we save it into her wish list. And so right as of this moment, there's like 30-something pictures on there, and her birthday is not for another 9, 10 months. But let's say in this analogy, she goes and she sees all these toys, and she's like, oh, this is amazing. Like, oh, I wish I, I, wish I can get this, this princess toy. And I go, isn't this one really nice? And she's like, yeah, this one's nice. Like, she's getting amped up. She's loving it. I'm like, let's keep going throughout the store. Let's go keep walking around the store. We see a bike. She's like, oh, this is really cool. I wish I can get this. And she's like squealing with joy. And we're like, let's just keep going around the whole entire store and let's see everything. And so we go and we see everything. We get to every little aisle. We're looking at it. She's getting so excited and excited. And then finally we get all the way to the end of the store. And she's like just waiting and waiting to think about like what toy can she get. And I go and I kneel down next to her. And I say to her, the reason why I took you to the store, Audrey, is I want to show you all the things that I will never get you. All of this, you're never going to get from me. So you're on your own. Get it yourself. And I pick her up, and we go home. That would be messed up of me, right? That would be horrible. I would be a horrible father to do something like that. But that's exactly what the serpent 
is trying to make us think of our Heavenly Father. The serpent embeds this lie that God is a God that doesn't love us, that is withholding good things from us. The serpent is instilling this doubt that God actually doesn't love us, and the serpent manipulates us to think that we can't trust God. And so if God can't be trusted, then we have to take matters into our own hands. And that's what's happening here in the passage. And that lie becomes the catalyst to our rebellion. This lie is embedded in the man and in the woman. And interestingly, I think for many of people in our world, people ascribe to this view of God. They view that there's a higher being out there, but there's a God out there that does not love us. And the enemy wants us to think that God is this demanding God that just tells you all these do's and don'ts of what you can, can or cannot do and is withholding good things from us. Even as Christians, I think when things are not going well for you, when you're struggling, when you're going through a hard part in your life, you, you sometimes wonder as well, does God really have my best interest? And if God doesn't really have my best interest, then, then i got to figure things out on my own. This is what the serpent is doing. And so he gives you us this lie, which then leads to our rebellion and us distancing ourselves from God. That's the catalyst of our rebellion. The next point I have is looking at the core of our rebellion. So the serpent instills this lie that God actually does not love us, right? And that God is trying to withhold things from us. And then the serpent continues in verse 5 and says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent says that not only will you not die if you eat this fruit, but that actually this knowledge that you get from it will make you like God. And the serpent is focusing his temptation to, you will be like God if you eat this fruit. You can be your own God. The core of our rebellion is our desire to be our own God. Sin is the desire to be our own Lord and master over our lives. The root of sin is self-centeredness and pride and this wanting to be the masters of our own life. When you think about it in this way, when you understand sin in this manner, um, it's a great balancing act. We normally think of sin of keeping all the rules and laws, and right? So we delineate between the good people and the bad people depending on if the good people, they keep more of the laws and the bad people are the ones that keep breaking the laws. But when we understand sin more in the sense of it's this desire to be our own masters, we realize that we're all sinful. We're all sinners that are in this rebellion. And that's actually the core desire of our rebellion, it is this desire to be our own Lord and masters, to keep everything for ourselves. We find that in Genesis, God blesses them tremendously, gives them everything, and yet they want to keep it for themselves. They want to be the Lord over their own lives. I wanted to show a quick video of when Audrey was only two years old, and in this video, I had given her different snacks, and I gave her a big bowl of snacks, shrimp crackers right before it, and then so this is her second cup of snacks that I've given her, and, and now I just wanted to show real quick. Here. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh. Uh. Fine. Just one. Okay, okay. All right, you don't have to give me one. All right. All right. 
So she really did not want to share with me. Which is messed up because I just, I'm the one that just gave her a huge bowl of snacks right before this. And this is like their second cup and I just wanted one and yet she wouldn't want to give it to me. And this is just a humorous image of, of what it is for ourselves and the way in which we live our lives. Adam and Eve had just received all the blessings of creation and yet they take on this posture of, well, I want to be the master of everything. I want to keep everything for myself. As you look at your life, who is the actual Lord of your life? Is it God or is it yourself? I think at the core of our rebellion is our desire to be our own masters. We don't want God to rule over our life. God's given us this tremendous blessing, and then God calls us to use those blessings to bless others, to bless God, to serve others. And yet we take on this posture that we only want to serve ourselves. We want the glory. We want all the praises. We want to call all the shots. We want to be the masters. We don't want to give away our time, our treasures, our talents for God. We want it all for ourselves. Ask yourself, do you live in a way in which God is the Lord over your life? Or do you live in a way in which the Lord of your life is yourself? If you're not sure who is the Lord of your life, look in the way in which you use the blessings that God's given you. How do you use your time? Do you use your time to, to connect with God in prayer, reading His Word, praising Him? Or do you use it to, to, to serve others? Or do you use it merely for your own interests, your own hobbies? How do you use the, the finances and the money that, that God has given you? Do you spend it on things that you know will not last and not give you true joy? Or do you invest it in the kingdom? Do you tithe? Do you give to the church? Do you give generously to the mission of God? Or do you use it only to spend on yourself? How do you use the talents and the gifts that God has given you? Do you use it to, to bring praises to yourself? To maybe have more likes on social media? To increase your influence in your platform so that you get the glory? Or do you use it to bless God, to bless others? See, the core of our rebellion is this desire to be our own Lord and Master. To Lord, to Lord over the things that we've been graciously given by our Creator. And that's what the serpent gets at. When he puts Adam and Eve to, he, he compels them, helps them to rebel in disobeying God in the act of eating that forbidden fruit. And it's in that disobedient act that humanity's core desire to be our own masters comes up to the surface. Pride in being our own masters right, is the core of our rebellion. The last point that I have is the cure of our rebellion. So after this disobedience, Adam and Eve feel shame, they feel naked. Uh, before eating the fruit, they, they didn't even know that they were naked, and so they, they're, they're fine, they didn't feel any shame. But yet, once they ate the fruit, their eyes are open, and then they really, they notice that they're naked, and they start to feel shame and embarrassment. And so they go and they, they make themselves clothes and whatnot to cover themselves up. And something actually dramatic happens here is because when they do this, in this disobedient act, they sever the connection between God and themselves. And in their rebellion, it sets off this domino effect in which sin enters into the world and further corruption begins. 
And we'll be exploring some a little bit more of this in the next couple of weeks and in the effects of this act. But this rebellious act becomes the trigger to humanity's downfall. Adam and Eve feel lost and ashamed and distant from God. They even come to just hide themselves from, from God when God comes to, to look after them. But the story doesn't end there. Spoiler alert. God, in his great compassion, devises a way to bring back humanity to himself. The serpent used a tree to bring about humanity's downfall. But God uses a different tree to bring about humanity's redemption. Adam and Eve ate from the tree that allowed sin to enter into this world, but God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a tree to take the punishment for our rebellion. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve death after this rebellion. But God in his great love and compassion finds a way to pay the price for our rebellion in order for for us to get back to him and to receive eternal life. I'll close with this this story. Um, As you might have heard, um, that pastor kids are considered, you know, either one of the Good, you know, good kids, or there can be pretty bad kids, and I would probably say that I was in that when I already told you a story about how, as a, as a five-year-old, I'm like stealing offering. So I actually grew up to be a pretty bad pastor's kid, right? Um, that was that that story I just told you was only the beginnings of my stealing career. Okay, my um, it was around middle school that this actually really started to to, to come out. Um, what started out as maybe stealing a few little pieces of candy became far worse, okay? Uh, I remember the first time I actually s- learned about shoplifting. Uh, I was with some of my friends in the neighborhood. We went to the mall where one of my friends, he was like in the mall. We were in like the, one of the stores there, and he's like, hey, do you like candy? And I was like, of course I like candy. And he's like, which candy do you like? And I was like, oh, Skittles over there, right? And he's like, oh, okay. And then he goes, he shows me it, puts it in his pocket, and he walks out the store. And then after we walk out, he's, he's like, there you go, here's your, here's your Skittles. And I was like, oh, that was easy. So I was like, this is pretty cool. Now I can just get whatever candy I want. So I didn't learn my lesson from as a five-year-old. <laughs> so I go to the store, and it starts out with just candy. I steal a couple candies or whatever, walk out the store, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is easy. So then it becomes like baseball cards, basketball cards, and then it becomes like little trinkets and, and whatnot, right? And then eventually it gets to a point where it goes to full-fledged computer games, right? Um, I, back then, I used to love computer games, right? Uh, and as a kid, I would just play computer games all the time. And so I thought, might, might as well go to the big leagues and try to steal these computer games, okay? And, and back then, if you remember, so like back then, they would actually put the games outside on display. Not like they do now, where they put it behind the plastic thing, locked up. It's probably because of people, kids like me, that, that's why they do that. But back then, they would actually leave the boxes outside, and so then you could go ahead. And so what I would do is I would actually go and I would take the game, and I'd bring it to the corner of the store, um, and then I would put it under my jacket, and I would walk out. And so, uh, I, at the time, I was in middle school, and I was considered probably the smallest 
shortest, lightest kid there was. I was like 50 pounds at the time. Uh, but the way it worked out was I actually wore this starter jacket. I don't know if you guys remember what starter jackets used to be really popular. This is actually exactly what the starter jacket I had, right? And it was like way too big for me. It was humongous, and, and I would wear it. And I would walk into the store, and I would go, and that's how I would steal it, because I would take the games, I put it underneath my, 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 my jacket, and then I would walk out. So eventually, I, I would just keep finding out, like, this is, this, is, this is easy. Like, I can actually do this. And so I used to play all these games. And I don't know if you remember this, too. So back then, when you played computer games, they all came on the floppy disks. I don't know if you remember this, but, um, and you would have to like install it, and there's like 20 disks, and you have to go from one to another. But because they're like, cor they can get corrupt or they can be malfunctioning, like you, if you bought the game and it didn't work, you would have to go to the store and you can actually exchange it for another game. But what ends up happening is I stole it, so I would have to steal another one if it didn't work. So in the course of this time, I probably stole about like 30 to 40 games. So it's just pretty bad, okay? I know you guys are judging me right now. You're like, why did we make this guy a pastor? <laughs> and so I remember at the time, I would steal one game at a time. And then I started getting really risky. And I get really sloppy. And I thought, I'm going to steal three games at this time, right? And so I go to the store one day. I go, I do my normal routine. I go and I take the computer games and put it in the corner. I think the manager's not looking. And I go and I put all three games in my jacket, and I try to walk out. As I'm walking out, a hand grabs my, my jacket, and it goes, hold it right there. And then I'm like, uh oh. And they're like, I need you to empty your jacket. So there I go, I empty my jacket, three computer games come out. It's like, you gotta wait right here, we're calling the police. So they go, they call security, or they call a police officer, T happen to be there, police officer comes, and once I see the police officer, I start crying. I'm like, I'm going to go to jail. My life is over. Like, I'm dead meat. And, right? and so the, the manager sees this and like, has pity on me and says, we're not going to put you to jail. We're not going to do any of those things, but we need your, your home phone number. And we need to tell your parents. So they go and they call my parents. And then my parents weren't home at the time, so they leave a message on the answering machine. Um, and then... They go and they're like, okay, you're gonna, we, your parents need to deal with this. We're not going to press charges. But then this manager looks me straight in the eye and says, I don't ever want you to ever come back into the store. And I was like, okay, I'll never come back here. Like, I'm sorry. And so I go and, and I, I leave the store and then I'm walking back home and I'm like dreading what's going to happen. Like, I'm thinking, okay, my parents are going to kill me. Like, my parents are going to, like, beat me. And I was spanked as a kid, uh, but I was thinking, like, this is going to be, like, the, the worst of it all. Like, this is it. I am dead. And I remember I was walking home, and it was crazy because it was, like, snowing. And so, like, it was really dramatic. It was like, I'm, like, walking to my death, right? And I'm walking home. I finally get back to my, my house, and then I'm in the backyard, and I just, like, lie down in the back, and I let the snow snowflakes just like fall on my face right? and I'm just waiting there and then my, I hear my parents come home then they like you hear the thing and then they realize that I'm back home and I'm in the backyard my dad calls me he's like Abraham come inside I'm like okay so I know I'm like I'm in trouble they've, they've heard the message I'm in big trouble 
So my dad goes, hey, come into the family room. I have to talk to you. So he goes, we go one in the family room, and I'm like, I'm, I'm dead. Like, this is it. This is my, my life is over. Like, there, there's... And so my dad's standing over me. He actually starts taking off his belt. Takes his belt off, right? And he holds the belt in his hand. He, like, tightens his grip. And I look at him, and I was like, okay. So I kneel down beyond, and I turn around, and I'm exposing my back to him to allow him to, like, hit me in the back. Right? So I close my eyes, and then I start hearing the crack of the belt hitting something. Whap, whap. And I realize that I'm not feeling anything. So then I open my eyes, and I look, and I turn around, and there's my dad. He has his belt, and he's hitting his leg. He's just hitting his leg over and over, right? His exposed leg, and you start seeing the welt on it. And then eventually, he keeps hitting it where it actually breaks the skin, and it starts bleeding. And I see him do it, and I, I start crying, and I'm sobbing, and I say, Dad, stop, stop, stop. So I, I, I grab him, and I try to hold him back, and he just keeps hitting himself, and he says, if anyone's to blame for this, it's me. It's my fault. I'm your father. I'm the one that should take this. And I say, Dad, Dad, stop, stop, stop doing this. Like, I deserve it. Let me get hit. Like, this is my fault. And then he says to me, he says, like, I should have taught you that stealing is wrong. What, what made you think that you didn't have something, that you needed to steal something? Like, I want to provide for you, so it's my fault. And I say, no, not Dad, it, it's my fault. It's my fault. And after this, he goes, and he just goes, and he embraces me, and he hugs me. And I told him, I said, Dad, I will never do this ever again. I will never steal. And I remember back then that that was such a huge thing for me because it taught me this huge lesson. That there's always a cost for our sin. There's always a cost for our failings. There's a cost to our rebellion. And that penalty, according to Romans 6, that penalty is death. But the good news is that Jesus pays the cost of our sins once and for all through the cross. And it's in this act that Jesus gives us a new life in redemption. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The gospel is that Jesus endures and experiences all the painful things of the cross in his death out of his great love for you and for I. The absurdity of the gospel is, is that we are the ones that rebelled, and yet Jesus is the one that pays for it. Jesus takes the punishment on our behalf. And that was the cost of humanity's rebellion all the way back in Genesis 3. And that cost was death, where Jesus takes that punishment out of his great love for us. And so that is the cure of our rebellion. It came in the form of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' death and resurrection where we can experience true redemption and reconciliation. Our rebellion was rooted in this pride to be our own masters, and yet God says, I love you, and I will pay for it so that you can come back to me. We wanted everything for ourselves right? in our rebellion. And Jesus still, out of his great love for us, lays down his life for us. 
We look to God and we know that God is the, indeed the one, the cure, the one that gives us true grace and mercy. And it's on us to accept that lavish love that he gives for us. But not only that, if you've accepted God's grace for your life, it is also turning our lives to him. Surrendering, not wanting to be the own masters of our own lives, be the lords of our lives, but allowing God to be the Lord of our life. Because God wants to bless you. God is not withholding anything from you. God is giving you everything he gave his life for you. And that is indeed the gospel, and that is the good news that we have in Jesus. And my prayer, my hope is that you would remember that. Or if you've never accepted that, you would accept that this morning. Let's pray together.